words and word, words and word. Among the many words, find us with the living word of Christ. And this our time together, O God. Amen. Well, I'm so glad to be back. I appreciate Cheryl asking me. And I had a wonderful experience recently with uh, our now older youth group uh, that was all 15 when I came, and they're a little older than that now, but then so am I. And we were at Holly's place here on the lake, and Jody Hunt did all the gathering together of folks, and uh, I could name off the long list, but I think their posters are in the post office somewhere, so you can find them there. Uh, we, we did miss uh, uh, Walt, who sent several messages. We would love to have had Walt to come play for us, but he's in, uh, he's in Holland touring Europe right now. So he once sang for us here, and now he's across the sea. We humans ask lots of questions. Why is there something and not nothing? Why is there something and not nothing? Paul Tillich was a great theologian who began his whole theology with that question. I remember being in Wally Christian's class, an introduction to theology at Baylor University, and he had a film clip of Dr. Tillich asking that question. In his broken English and German, he goes, why is there something and not nothing? And we all laughed, of course. Um, but the question is profound. Why, why is there something and not nothing? Tillich says that is the central question of human existence. Why are we here? Who is in charge? Better yet, as my son asked me when he was five, Daddy, who's in charge of everything? I said, well, it's not me. <laughs> Maybe your mother, but go ask her. Why should I bother with prayer? Why is there evil? Why is there innocent suffering in this world? Why is there temptation everywhere? Why is there addiction? Why, why, why? Lots of questions. Why? Interestingly, according to Scripture, God also asks questions of us. You may recall the very first question that God posed. It comes in the third chapter of Genesis. Adam, he says, where are you? Adam, or in Hebrew, Adam. Adam, which means humankind. Humankind, where are you? My children, where are you? It's a question that has been asked in the wake of catastrophe. God's human children have lost their way. They have broken a trust, and in the process, they've spoiled paradise of all things. And shame takes hold of them. They cover themselves in shame. They hide they are embarrassed. They are humiliated. Part of the tragedy, you see, is that God had grown so fond of enjoying their company in the cool of the day. And so on this evening, as always before, God goes out for a walk and comes looking for them. God comes seeking their companionship. God comes to enjoy you and me, to just be with His children. God comes out of a desire for intimacy. He just wants to be there but they are missing, not there, no forwarding address. They're gone, and lots of parents experience this feeling. Where are my children? So God goes looking for them, 
And for the first time, a question is pulled from the throat of God. Where are you? Where, where are you? Where, where are you hiding? What a strange notion, really. What a strange notion that God is searching for us. I can think of nothing like this in any other religious tradition other than the Judeo-Christian tradition. When human beings think of deity, we think in terms of things like power or terms of creativity or in terms of great intelligence, and rightly so. Religious systems all vary on the question of what deity is like and where deity resides and how deity behaves. For some, deity mostly is just remote. Something like a rational principle or a cosmic force way, way off, serenely beyond us. For others, other religious traditions, the deity is everywhere, alive in every plant, flower, animal. God is so close, so intimate. But whether God is viewed mostly as remote or as immediate in religion on whole, it's about how we humans go about seeking God. That's what religion is. Conforming our lives to the way God wants or thinking about God. Religion is about what we do, how we get connection to God, whether that's to obey a set of rules or a system of laws or to live a certain life or whatever. We're supposed to do what God tells us to do. That's the way life is supposed to be, supposedly. And yet, and yet right here at the very beginning, the Bible is making this extremely odd counterclaim. There are actions here in a most counterintuitive way. God is seeking us, it says. God who is conceivably beyond us moves and probes and reaches for us. God who is everywhere present does not wait to be discovered. God has not gone off into hiding. Rather, God launches a passionate initiative to grab hold of us, to pull us close, to be near. We humans may rightly go asking after God, where are you? Why don't you conform to my ideas or my prayers or my presence or whatever? Why don't you behave as I think God ought to behave? But the witness of Scripture says that our quest is preceded first by God's seeking of us. Where are you? Where are you gone? Why are you hiding? You don't have to live in fear. I love you. I want to be with you. You are my blessed children. You who are parents know that feeling. You want so much for your children to understand it. And so often they don't. Or they rebel. Or they push away. And what we want to say to them I delight in you. I take all of my joy in you. Why can't you hear that? There are lots of thinkers, of course, who dismiss this as a primitive projection, 
Anthropomorphism is the word, making God out to be like us. But please remember, Israel literally surrounded, was surrounded by dozens of religions that did just that, worshiping gods who were pretty much like them. They were, these gods were capricious like us. They were sexual like us. They were greedy like us. They let humans appease them and constantly seek their flavor, favor, not their flavor. You had to do X, Y, and Z to get their approval. That is one primitive religion, and still it's the tone of much of the religion in our world. I don't care how you dress it up. Whether it's high formal liturgy or whether it's sweating in the aisles, we all have this religion that somehow thinks here is X, Y, and Z. If I do it just right, if I say the words just right, then God will love me. When Israel finally pictured God as actually seeking to be in communion with us, to be intimate with us, to be utter revolutionary, and still is, it changes everything. Jesus is that revolutionary life in the flesh. We call him God's word made flesh, and this we know for sure. He is certainly God's question made flesh. In him, God's cry is to us, where are you? And that cry walked the earth on human feet, not only enacted God's passion to reach us, but spoke it so often. Many, many, many are the parables in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and even in John that speak of it, that picture God's extravagant attempts to find us. And according to Luke, according to Luke, told two of his clearest pictures back to back, and started each with a question all about God. Here's the first one. Which one of you, having 100 sheep and losing just one, does not leave 99 in the wilderness and go after that one until the lost is found? And when he's found it, lays it on his shoulders and rejoices, and arriving home, calls together all his neighbors and says, Come over. I found the sheep that is lost. Let's celebrate. I'll never forget, my grandmother died when I was eight or nine. I don't remember. She was about 300 years old, it seemed. <laughs> Seminole, Oklahoma, sitting in her bedroom, talking to her. She's very ill. And she had the picture that we've all seen of Jesus carrying the lamb across his shoulders. And I said, Grandmother, what does that mean? My grandmother said that you always matter to God. And honey child to me too. I found the sheep that is lost. Let's celebrate just so. And Jesus says, I'm giving you this picture. Pay attention. I tell you, there's more joy over one wandering soul who is lost and coming home than the 99 who stayed behind and did it all the right way and were all so righteous and needed no repentance in their mind. That's how excited God is. He is so much more excited about this one that he's able to find than all those who are convinced they have it right. Jesus is describing a pretty ordinary shepherd in some ways and a pretty odd shepherd in other ways. 
It's expected of a shepherd if he loses his sheep to go find it. The odd part would be the part of the story where he leaves the 99. Duh. This old hymn that my grandmother sang, the 99 lay safely in the fold. Well, that's a nice thought. It just doesn't say that in the story, does it? It's a nice thought. It surely leaves them. Maybe he must have left them with an assistant shepherd. That must be what it was. Or, or maybe it was a British shepherd and he had a great sheepdog, as British shepherds do. And, but there's no record of that. Hmm. All it says is this shepherd, this shepherd did the strangest thing. He's so intent on finding the one that the one is more important in that moment. That he leaves the rest in the wilderness. And it just sounds utterly foolish to do so. But the point is, the point is, that's how absorbed God is in seeking us. You and me. He is relentless. This shepherd searches until he finds it. Since sheep are counted in the evening, what this means is that the search was most likely at night. So the shepherd is searching through a rough terrain in the dark with predators all around him. And he keeps searching, not in hopes of finding. He keeps searching until he does find. And when he finds there is no lecture, no, nothing like you woolly twerp. You're going to make good a good lamb chop for me someday. I've been thinking about mint jelly this whole time. There is no shame like that, no putting down, no lecture, no blame. There is instead ecstasy. Having searched like mad, he rejoices like mad. Jesus holds up this shining picture of a laughing, joyous shepherd, relentless in his searching, ecstatic in his finding. And he says, behold, behold this picture. This is your God. This is God. This is what God is like. All of Jesus' parables have that one point. This is what God is like. And it may be a strange-sounding parable, but maybe God is strange-sounding sometimes. This is what God is like. Can you hear that down in your bones? Can you feel that? Can you get that into your system? This is what God is like. This is how much God loves you. That's what this story wants to do with us. Because parables, parables get in and attach themselves to our hearts and minds after a while. Here you are in church. That's some kind of sign, possibly. Some kind of sign that you have an interest in seeking God. Maybe. And, and this story is here. It's here to astonish us. To catch us, catch our breath short. To make no sense to us some ways. And to, to say, guess what? This is God. You thought because so much a part of your DNA tells you that you needed to find God, didn't you? You've heard that forever in church, but did it ever occur to you that God needs to find you? 
Does it ever occur to you that your life is an ache in the heart of God until you and me are found? Consider this, that ache in your spirit, that endless restlessness, that discontent in the back of your brain. Is that just you? Or might that be the Holy One drawing you in? When some new longing stirs in you to live a more honest life, to fulfill a higher purpose, or when something brings unexpected tears out of nowhere, you say, where did those come from? Or a a welling up of a desire to do something important in your world, be it large or small, something maybe that you can even hardly name, but pay attention to that. Pay attention to those moments for the good shepherd. The good shepherd may be calling your name in that moment. Well, there's lots of things to say about this story and other ones in this chapter, but I'll save that for another time. But here's what I want you to receive. Every single one of us knows some experience of being lost. Every single one of us. Every single one of us knows what it is to be forgotten. Not knowing which way to turn. Being overwhelmed being frightened, being deeply grieved. We all know some experience of deep loneliness, of abandonment, of making some choices that have left us in some pretty dark places. We all know that is what it is to be lost. And we know that's a pretty common human experience. And this story says that God knows about our being lost as much as we do. But it says more. It also says that we are not meant to be lost forever. Some things can heal. Some relationships can be fixed. Some new relationships can come in that we never expected. Some loneliness can be abated. Some joy can well up. Some gladness can spill out. Some love can be transformed. It says that our deepest and highest dignity is to be found. It says that we can learn again and again and again that the one who knows us best and yet loves us most will never quit seeking us. Not until we have been For you see, this one who does not go out in hopes of finding us, this one stays after us until, until we have been found, until we have been truly, lastingly found. 